0: Good morning. It's great uh, to be back with you. It was about this time a year ago, I think, maybe October of last year, that I was last with you. And uh, one of the greatest privileges I have is is to uh, visit uh, with old friends. And Don and I first met in the classroom. He was on a screen; he wasn't in person. It was a distance location thing. And we um, we struck up a friendship and have kept in touch since. And it's always just refreshing for me to. To catch up with Dom, and uh, it's just a, a privilege to see the Lord at work, uh, not only in him, but through him, and just to stand here this morning and see uh, what's what's happened in a year. Dom's been here for two years now, I think, and uh, last time we were here, we were outside. Who, who would have thought all that would pass in one year, and I'm pleased that we're back inside now, but just to see how the church has grown uh, it's testimony to Dom's leadership. Uh, you know this, but uh, I'll just say it, you have a wonderful pastor. You're well served by by him, and uh, the Lord is evidently at work in this church, and, and we just praise him this morning for, for that. Uh, and it's and it's just a blessing uh, to be able to come here and, and see you all again and meet some new folks. Uh, and it's my privilege to open God's word. So this morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 11, a well-known passage, I trust, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Uh, I am preaching from the ESV for two reasons. One, I only just got my copy of the LSB. We worked on that thing for, uh, I guess, nearly two years, and I just last Friday got my copy of it, Old Testament and New, um, and it's, it's in my office uh, and more to the point, I just, I have a traveling Bible. Whenever I get in the car, I'll just put this in, and here's my ESV, and I love it. Uh, so it's, it's no slight on the LSB by any means. I just have my ESV ready to go. Uh, so I'll be preaching from the ESV this morning, chapter 11 of Genesis 1 through 9. Uh, I'll read the text, and then maybe we'll just pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you this morning for your goodness to us, especially your goodness to us in the gospel. We're so thankful that we can come together on your day as brothers and sisters in Christ, with our sins washed away. Not one offense is listed against our name in Christ. We stand before you this morning righteous not because of anything we've done, but because you've credited to us the perfect righteousness of your Son. We're washed, we're cleansed, we're forgiven, and we stand righteous. We come before you this morning as your children, adopted into your family, and for all of this we give you thanks. Father, we praise you this morning for your word, inerrant, inspired authoritative we are so thankful for the bible and it is our desire to submit our lives to your will father you know our sin you know exactly what it is that we bring here this morning and we confess that we haven't lived in the way that honors you with our thoughts and our words and our deeds And we want to change. We want to be more like Christ, our Savior. And so we pray now that through the preaching of your word, you would conform all of us more to the image of your Son, that you would have your way in our hearts, in our lives. Father, that even now you would soften our hearts, make us receptive to the truth, guide the meditations of our hearts, guide my words, that you would be honored, that we would leave here more like your son than when we arrived. Father, we desire for you to take all the glory in our lives. So we pray to that end, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is the Lord's Day, and here we are again, God's people on the Lord's Day. Same as last Sunday, same as every local church, we gather together on the Lord's Day as God's people, doing the same things that we always do on a Sunday. We sing songs of praise, we Pray prayers to Him, we enjoy fellowship together, and we open up God's Word. That's what Christians do. Here we are again on the Lord's Day. And I trust that each and every Sunday as you wake up, there is a level of anticipation, of excitement as you think of the day ahead and the the blessing that it is to come together with other believers and to worship God, that you look forward to the Lord's Day doing the same thing week in, week out, every Sunday. At the same time, here we are again with the same issues that there were last week. As we just prayed, we come here today by no means perfect. We come here with problems in our lives. We come here with sin issues persisting. Very rarely are they immediately fixed, but... Normally, in the Lord's wisdom, they worked out over a long period of time. And so we wake up each and every Sunday, and here we are again with the same issues. And that, of course, can be extrapolated beyond a Sunday. We wake up on a Monday morning, and we do what we do on a Monday. You fall into your Monday routine, and again, I would hope that there's a level of excitement to that, whatever your Monday looks like. But in the same sense, you wake up on a Monday, and we feel... The brokenness of life. You wake up on a Monday and whatever are the things in your life that weigh you down haven't disappeared magically overnight. It's here we are again, doing the same thing with the same issues, experiencing life in a fallen world. And that is very much the sense of Genesis chapter 11 and this narrative of the tower builders. Here we are again. If we zoom out and think of where we've come from, We've fallen a far, far way from Genesis chapter one and the glory of God creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and we see his majesty on display as he speaks and it comes into being. And over and over again, God declares it was good. And then the pinnacle of the created order was mankind. It was on mankind alone that he set his image and he gave him this, this mandate to make his glory known the whole world over and then just two chapters later, Mankind transgresses he disobeys God and the fall happens Genesis chapter 3 it all comes tumbling down Genesis 4 through 6 we see the explosion of sin things just get worse and worse and worse until God declares I regret that I made mankind He floods the earth as an act of judgment certainly he wipes the slate clean he destroys everything but also as an act of salvation Preserving just one family, Noah and his family, he keeps them safe in the ark. And when the flood waters subside, Noah emerges as a new Adam like figure. And the sense is we get a new start. It's a fresh start as Noah emerges from the ark. We get to start again. And then we read Genesis chapter 11. Just a few chapters after Noah has emerged into this new creative work. And the sons of man are doing their same old thing again, rebelling against their creator, turning their back on him, pursuing their own ways. Here we are again. And we're coming up to the first major section in Genesis, chapters 1 through 11 is that first unit of this book. We're coming to an end of that first unit and the intentional sense with which we're confronted at the end of the first unit is one of desperation, utter desperation. We've fallen from Genesis chapter 1 and the glory of the creative work all the way down to Genesis 11, and it seems like there is absolutely no hope for mankind. The flood did not fix the issue. At a heart level, sin still has not been dealt with. Here we are again. And so Moses wants us to feel very much at the end of this first section, what hope is there for us? Is meant to be a dark and gloomy finish to the end of the first section of Genesis, what hope is there for mankind? As we read through the narrative of the tower builders, we see many connections back to Genesis chapter 3, with, we're led to believe, to understand the desperate nature of mankind and all of it should work together so as to point us towards the gospel. As we close this unit, as we examine this text, we are left searching for answers. And sure enough, God gives, us to, gives them to us. He points us towards his gospel of grace and the Lord Jesus Christ, and therein we find the solution to our problem. And so that is what we'll see this morning, the desperation of mankind portrayed in this short narrative, but also God's grace that leads us to the gospel. Structurally, we can divide the passage into three sections. Perhaps when I read, you noticed that three times we come across the phrase, come, let us. One in verse 3, come, let us. Once in verse 4, come, let us, and then in verse 7, when God says it, come, let us let us, three times that occurs, and we can divide the passage according to those three speeches. The first comes from the builders, and I've titled the first section simply Plans to Build as they embark upon this this building project. Now, in the first speech, what we see is not outright sin. There isn't an outright manifestation of wickedness in the first speech, but really just question marks. There's a a level of wisdom that comes into question as we see their plan. Look at the text again with me. We read, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. God is just emphasizing there the unity with which these people were acting. They had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. They settled there, and they said... Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So what's the problem? What's the issue there? Again, there isn't an outright manifestation of sin, but there are question marks being raised as to the wisdom of their plans. We can see it, first of all, simply by virtue of the fact that the people were traveling east. Verse 2, they came from the east to go further east. And what we notice as we zoom out is that in the book of Genesis, eastward travel is always construed as a negative thing. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. As Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they're put out of that blessed place, Eden. They're put east of Eden. They're put east of Eden, and the cherubim are set up so as to guard the entrance to the garden. They're not allowed back east. They're They're not allowed back in. They're pushed eastward. And what that does is it begins a motif that you can trace all the way through Genesis where any eastward travel never ends well. So in the very next chapter, Cain kills his brother Abel, and the punishment that God gives him is to push him further east, further away from the Garden of Eden. In a few chapters time, Abraham will be with Lot and they come to this abundant land and Abraham says, you choose, there's there's not enough space for both of us, we need to separate, you pick which way you'll go and Lot goes east. And immediately Abraham is forced to come to his rescue because he's run into trouble. There is this motif that permeates all the way through Genesis where eastward travel is seen as a bad thing. You're moving away from the purposes of God. And so in Genesis chapter 11, it's not insignificant that we read these people are coming from the east, traveling further east, we're raising question marks about the wisdom of what's happening here. Secondly, we read that they found a plain. They found a plain in the land of Shinar. that's preempting the building of the tower. But notice that they settled there. Again, that raises a question mark. Are they doing the right thing? Why? Because all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, when God created mankind, he gave Adam a mandate, and the mandate was to go. He said to Adam, you need to fill the earth with image bearers. You need to go. You need to fill the earth. Be traveling so as to spread this glory everywhere. And so we anticipate as we read through Genesis that those who are obedient to the mandate are moving. They're on the move. In Genesis chapter 11 just a note just a cautionary note arises when we read they settled there and then lastly they suggest to one another the making of bricks the burning and the fashioning of these bricks for building well the problem is in Uh, Israel, if you ever have the chance to visit there, you'll see that the land is covered in in rocks. It's a very, very rocky part of the world, and the Jewish people will joke that when God made Israel, He sneezed and spilled all His rocks, just rocks everywhere. And so building projects from God's people in the Bible were typically them gathering rocks so as to put them together as best they could and build something. And it was always a mark of another people, another society, those outside of God's people that would be making bricks, fashioning bricks. It's not that God is opposed to technology, but one thing that was always true when we look at the Egyptians or later on the Babylonians that would make bricks, the king who oversaw the building project would always put his name in the brick. His name would be found inscribed on the brick as a mark of his authority, so as to project his power to the world, saying, this building project is all of my, my doing. It's my glorious thing that I built this. And as you examine these various building projects in the time in which Moses was writing, they were always embarked upon so as to, to validate the king's reign before the gods, The king would commission a tower to be built to say to the gods that he worshipped, I'm something. You need to take note of me. And so again, in this first speech, it's not outright sin, but there are warning signs. It seems like now God's people are choosing to do the same thing, validate themselves before God, project their power before him. They seem to be making a foolish choice. And as you know, so often it is the foolish choice that leads to the sinful choice. It's not that the Christian wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to choose to go against God's will today. It's not that the Christian gets up and reads the Bible and says, and I'm going to choose to disobey. The way the sin works itself out in your life, more often than not, is that you start making foolish choices. And it is the foolish choice that leads to the sinful choice. I often think of Genesis 1 through 11 as a theology of sin. You can study this first portion of your Bible and learn just about everything you need to know about sin from these chapters. And as you study it, one thing that you'll see is it is littered with foolish choices. There are all kinds of foolish choices in these first few chapters of the Bible, and inevitably, they lead to transgression. Think about Cain. He offered a bad sacrifice to God. He chose not to bring the very best to God, and God even warned him. He said, Cain, your your countenance has dropped. You need to make a better choice, and sin is crouching at the door. It is right there ready to consume you off the back of your foolish choice. And Cain chose to ignore the Lord, and he becomes a murderer. It began with a second-rate offering. And the next thing we know of this man, he is killing his brother. In Genesis chapter Six, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were pleasing to the eye. They just observe, they make make an observation. Stop there. Don't go any further with that observation. But their foolish wanderings lead to sin. They transgress the, the demarcations of creation. And God says, off the back of that, I've had enough, it's gone too far. And then in Genesis chapter 11, these builders say, let's let's make some bricks. Let's just settle here and we'll make some bricks so as to build a tower. And that leads to their sin. The second speech, thinking now about the purpose for building. Look at the text again, verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So their initial plan was to make bricks. They settled down, and they have this idea of a tower, and now that is being made explicit in the second speech. They're just laying it all out there. And what's interesting about this narrative, rarely in the Bible, at least in in Old Testament narrative, rarely do we see the intentions of men's heart put so clearly on display. When you read through Old Testament narrative, it's normally that we see people's actions and we see their speech and we have to think through, okay, so, so why were they doing this? What was their driving motive? These guys make it plain. They just put it all out on the table and say, here's what we want to do and why. They say, we want to build a a city and a tower. And the the original is, is a little bit terser than that. And it could easily be construed as, we want to build a city tower. Let us make a city tower. Perhaps you've seen the painting of the Tower of Babel by an artist called Bruegel. And it's this huge tower that he painted with many hundreds of people teeming over the tower. He painted a city tower. And that seems to be the sense of what they're saying here, not just some isolated tower, concrete tower, but this enormous construction that they could live in and and that would be their, their sense of community and life. And it could even be that in the notion of building a city tower... They're proclaiming this idea of of self-dependence, of not needing to rely on God. But then they go on and they just make explicit why they want to do this. Let's build a city tower with its top in the heavens. Now, there's the first issue. You understand these people are not trying to build the tower up to the heavens in order to enjoy a fuller sense of communion with God. That's not what they're doing. They're not saying, let's build this city tower to try and get closer to God. We just want that that richer worship experience, so we just need to get up there. That's not what they're doing. They're saying, let's build a city tower up to the heavens to make ourselves like him. We want to be up there. Let's build this tower so we can elevate ourselves. Again, think back to Genesis chapter 1. God created the heavens and the earth. He made the the beasts of the field, and then he made mankind as the pinnacle of his created order. And he blessed him so richly that the psalmist rightly declares, what is man that you are mindful of him? The psalmist looks back at the creation narrative and says, I can't believe that you blessed us so richly. What is man that you are mindful of him? You have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. But what is clear is that in Genesis chapter 1, God set Adam on earth. That's his domain, not the heavens. And in Genesis 11, these builders respond and say, we don't like our appointed lot. We want to be up in the heavens. The first offense that they make so plain to us is that they're trying to make themselves equal with God. They then go on. And they say, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Well, there's the second offense. What's the issue? Again, going back to Genesis chapter 1, God named man. Naming in the ancient Near East at the time Moses was writing, naming was a very, very significant thing. If you were to name something, it is an exercising of authority over the thing named. We see this even today, actually, when parents name their child. It's a very simple example, but it's a a declaration of this being our child. The child doesn't name himself. The doctor doesn't name the child. The parents do that. He's our child. In the Gospels, you see it when Jesus interacts with with a spirit-filled person, a a demon-possessed person. Oftentimes, the interaction begins with the demon proclaiming the name of Christ. I know who you are. You are Christ, the Son of the Most High. That's the demon trying to get the upper hand by naming Christ. And that's why he responds and he silences the demon. He says, you don't get to name me. You don't get to pronounce my name You don't get to exercise authority over me. So in Genesis chapter 1, it's extremely important to note that God names mankind. He declares the name. He says, Adam, taken from the earth, set above all other things, but I declare your name. And then notice, he says to Adam, you name everything else. Adam gets to name the beasts of the field, and God is saying, you are over them. So he's establishing this hierarchy, I name you, you name the beast of the field. Genesis chapter 11, we don't like that. We don't like our apportioned lot. We don't like our domain. Let's build a tower up to the heavens and we're going to name ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We don't like the fact that we sit under God. So, if the first offense was to make themselves equal with God, the second offense is them trying to supplant God. They're trying to take his place by making a name for themselves. And then thirdly, they say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And that's the third offense. Now, that's kind of odd, and we often miss the details when we read familiar narratives. When we know the story well, I think we're so at home with what it says that we miss the obscure things. If I said to you this morning, so what was the issue at the Tower of Babel? What was the problem? Perhaps you would have said, well, they were were prideful. It was the pride of their hearts that God didn't like. And certainly you would be right, but I think we can be a little bit more specific than that. There is an outworking of the pride of their hearts, certainly, but how do we explain their desire to not be dispersed? And the answer, again, is found in those first few chapters of the Bible. When God created mankind, he gave Adam a mission. We'll often refer to it as the Adamic mandate, his instructions for living. Genesis chapter 1, God says he set his image on Adam. He made us image bearers, and that is true of every single one of us here today. We are all image bearers, and what image bearing means is that we are very simply God's representatives. To be an image bearer means we represent God. We are put on earth so as to represent Him. We are His ambassadors on earth. So when God sets up Adam as an image bearer, notice the very next thing He says Is fill the earth. So take those two thoughts together. You're my image bearer. You're my representative. Now fill the earth. I'll often paraphrase it like this. God's instruction to mankind was to fill the earth with God's glory. That was Adam's job description. It is our job description today. We are his image bearers, his representatives. Now fill the earth with image bearers i.e. make my glory known. Go from here in such a manner that my glory is made known the whole earth over. That was Adam's job. And he failed. It all came crashing down in Genesis chapter 3. But that mandate persists. Sin doesn't change the instructions. We're still image bearers and our role is still to make God's glory known. That's why after the flood, when Noah emerges from the ark, God sets upon him his covenant and he repeats the divine mandate, fill the earth as an image bearer, make my glory known. So you see, when we get to Genesis chapter 11 and we come across these arrogant, prideful tower builders, they say, we want to be equal with God. Let's make a tower up to the heavens. Actually, we want to replace God. Let's make a name for ourselves. And then they say, let's thwart God. Let's go against his purposes. Let's stay here. It's as if they're crossing their arms in the face of God and saying, we will not go. We're not going to make your glory known the whole earth over. Rather, we're just going to stay here to the praise of our own glory. You see this threefold, these three levels of sin working themselves out in this building project. And the folly of which we could be guilty this morning is to think that this sin is far removed from our own hearts. The folly that we could be guilty of this morning is to read this well known narrative and say, weren't they so wicked? And to not think that at some level, the same sin dwells in our own hearts. That in our flesh, we all desire to make a name for ourselves. We all desire to to make ourselves equal with God, to replace him in our lives, to go against his purposes so as to pursue our own purposes. We're all very, very capable of building our own tower. We're all very capable of doing exactly the same thing as these builders did. And so we have to think through what is the antidote? How do we respond to this narrative? How do we make sure that we're not found at the end of our life, the testimony being you built your own tower and that's all you ever did? And I would say the antidote is twofold. Negatively, you put off this, how? Because you live your life by Proverbs 27.2. Proverbs 27.2, let another praise you, not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Mark it down, write it on your forehead, preach it to yourself every single morning. Let someone else praise you, not your own mouth. Let a stranger praise you, not your own lips. This is God's authoritative word speaking to you. You are not to be someone who praises yourself. You have to examine your life and see where it is you are prone to shine the light on yourself. It is true of all of us that we want people to to sit up and take notice. We're all prone to build a tower to the praise and glory of our own name. And God says to us, don't do it. And what's so funny is that we think we can do it in a very, very subtle way, that we can just very discreetly praise ourselves as if nobody will really know what's going on. People see right through it. Our pride has a very, very bad odor to it. And it stinks. And God says, don't praise yourself. Commit this day to being someone that will not praise your own name." You're not gonna do what these guys did. And then positively, the way you avoid becoming a tower builder in the likeness of these men is to better tune your heart to the mandate that he gave to Adam to make God's glory known. You have to so tune your heart to the vision that God gave to Adam to make his glory known the whole world over. You have to meditate and ruminate on the the glorious vision that God gave to Adam of a world filled with the fame of his glory. You have to think upon the riches of God's glory being made known the whole world over. This is where I think the prophets go when they say over and over again, there is a day coming when the whole world will be covered with a knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The psalmist prays that, may that happen, Lord. Isaiah speaks it, Habakkuk speaks it. They look forward and they say, one day the whole world will be covered with a knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And I believe that they are playing off there the the Adamic mandate. They saw the vision that God gave to Adam. Make my glory known, and then the prophets pick it up, and they look forward, and they say, it's going to happen. It's going to come to pass. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And they're excited to proclaim that message. And the only way to avoid being a tower builder is to get excited with them, to tune your heart to the glorious vision of the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. So just think about what that means. A knowledge, an awareness of God's glory the whole world over. Not one square inch of this planet will not know God's glory. Every square inch of planet Earth will have a knowledge of God's glory. But then they go on, how will they know that glory? They say as the waters cover the sea. And there again, there's a strange phrase. What do we mean, the waters covering the sea? The picture they create for us is simply water upon water. And I wrestled, what do they mean when they say that? Maybe an illustration would help. Before I moved into vocational ministry, I served for seven years in the submarine service. I know there are some military folks here today. I'm in good company. And one of the things we used to do on the submarines was a deep dive. Before we went away on patrol, we would take the boat out on a workup period. We'd put the, the boat and the crew through its paces. we just make sure that everybody's ready and the boat's ready to do whatever might be asked of it on a patrol. And in that patrol period, one of the things we used to do was a deep dive. We'd go out to sea and we'd take the submarine way, way below patrol depth. And none of us felt very comfortable about the deep dive. It had to be done, but nobody looked forward to it. And when you take the submarine really deep, certain things start to happen. So there'd be a guy stationed at every one of the major hatches on the submarine, and he would be measuring the leak rate. And as you take the boat deeper and deeper, the leak rate increases. There's a dripping through the hatch that gets faster and faster. And then the boat would start to creak and to groan. And then some funny things would happen if you were using the bathroom at the time of the deep dive. We had these cubicles. The whole boat squeezes. So now the door's locked and you can't push it open because the frame's pushing in on it. Nobody liked the deep dive. And it's just a very vivid picture of what it is to be under an awful amount of water. The pressure that comes as you dive that submarine is incredible. If we were to go much deeper, the submarine would implode. It would just be crushed. I think the prophets had something similar in mind when they said the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It won't be a subtle manifestation of God's glory in that day. It will be a profound manifestation of God's glory. It won't be oppressive. Those that belong to God will not be oppressed by His glory. We will rejoice at how much His glory is made known. And our responsibility today as Christians is to tune our heart with that vision. We need to get excited about that vision. Thomas Chalmers wrote famously, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He talked about the the necessity for the Christian to put off sin, but rightly he said that can't be the sum total of it. You have to be putting off sin, fighting sin fiercely. You have to, but you have to recognize the expulsive power of the new affection. You put off the sin and you replace it with something glorious. You have to replace it with a glorious substitute, a new affection, something that you can be excited about. You put off the pride that dwells in your heart. You resolve today to not be someone that praises your own name. And you tune your heart to the glory of the plan that God has in store for His fame and for our good which is one day coming, and it's by that means that you avoid becoming a tower builder in the likeness of these men. We're all building something. The truth is every single one of us, every single day wakes up and we build towards something. The question is, Are you building a tower to your own name or to the praise of God? Well, that leads to the third speech titled Reasons to Confuse, God responds. He says in verse 6, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. It's important to recognize when God says, Nothing will now be impossible for them. He's not talking about any threat to his glory. God is not responding and saying, now that they've done this, there's a chance that they're going to overpower me. God does not feel threatened by our efforts against him. He's not looking at the tower tower builders and saying, we've got to act now because otherwise I might lose the top spot. What he's saying is, now that they've been willing to go against my plan in this way, now that they've been willing to turn their backs in this manner, there's nothing that's impossible for them as it relates to their own sin. They've taken a step here, he's saying. They have taken a step against my decreed purpose for them. And now that they've been willing to do this, really there's nothing that they won't do. I am still going to get the glory. But they will destroy themselves with their sin. So when God responds and says, come let us, he is acting according to his grace. When God confuses them, he is acting according to his grace. I wonder if you've ever considered that. I often used to think upon the Tower of Babel narrative and just wonder, why did you do that, God? I think about modern missions today. Arguably the greatest obstacle, humanly speaking, to the gospel going out to the nations is the language barrier. A guy or a girl has to go and live in location for maybe three, five, ten years before they can communicate fluently these theological truths. God, why did you confuse the languages? But he was acting graciously. If he had not done this, they would have destroyed themselves with their sin. So God responds, and notice the the three speeches. Mankind is acting out of turn, beyond his appointed limits, when he says, come, let us. That is the language God uses in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. So from the very beginning, we saw the sinfulness of man simply being willing to speak as if he were God. Let us do this. He then says it a second time and makes plain his intentions. Well, the third time belongs to God. And now he replies and says, let us thwart his efforts. And he stops the building project. He confuses the language and they're dispersed. You see the irony. God's act of judgment on them is at the same time an act of grace that does accomplish his purpose for them. They are dispersed. You are going to obey me. One day you will obey me. God says, let us disperse them. They are going to do what I've intended for them. And so as the building project is stopped, they all put down their tools and they're dispersed over the face of the earth. We are confronted with the question of where do we go from here? If we've read the narrative correctly from Genesis 1 through to 11, we see just how dark and gloomy a chapter of God's word this is. The glory of the creative work came tumbling down with Adam's transgression in chapter 3. He turned his back on the privileged position, and then sin exploded 4 through 6. God wiped the slate clean with the flood. A new beginning, but it wasn't. The sin of man still dwells in his heart, and so the first section of Genesis comes to an end, and we should be asking, where do we go from here? What's the solution? And in God's gracious response to thwart their efforts, in God's gracious response, we are pushed towards a consideration of the gospel. You see, even here in this dark chapter, there are hints of God's intentions to resolve this in an ultimate sense. As he stops the building project, it doesn't resolve the issue of of sin in man's heart ultimately, but there are hints that he intends to do so. Consider the fact the very next verse, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. The name Shem is a play off the Hebrew name for name. These are the generations of the one who has a name, he says. The builders wanted to make a name for themselves. Their pride is on display and God says, I'm not going to let you do it to yourselves. But the next verse he responds and says, but I will give you a name. And then in Genesis chapter 12, just a few verses later, he calls Abraham and notice It is not incidental that the first thing he says to Abraham is, go. He's saying, get back on with the mission. You have to fill the earth with my glory. You have to make it known. He calls Abraham and he says, go. Get back on board. I'm giving you another shot at this. And he promises to Abraham, if you would obey me, I will make you a great name. He is committed to our good and to his glory through his plan. And as you know, it's through the line of Abraham that we get the tribe of Judah. And from Judah, we get the line of David. And ultimately, we land with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who appears in Daniel 7 as one like a son of man. Did you see how in the Tower of Babel incident, we read about the sons of man, the offspring of Adam? They're doing exactly what their forefather did. They're just behaving like Adam. And the sons of man are found all over the Old Testament behaving in the same way, refusing to obey their creator. And then one appears like a son of man who obeys God perfectly. He comes face to face with the Ancient of Days. And God gives to him all power and dominion and authority. And all the nations praise him. And there is the solution, the ultimate solution to our problem. Now, I want to be really clear. If you have come here this morning and you don't know Christ savingly, we rejoice that you're here, but you are not going to enjoy the benefits that the children of God will one day enjoy when Christ appears. If you've never trusted in Christ for the salvation of, Of your soul when Christ returns very very soon you will not enjoy the good things that he brings you will only face judgment in that day you'll be counted amongst the builders at Babel and the testimony of your life that Christ will declare is that you've lived your life making a name for yourself and you will reap the punishment in accordance with your sins." The good news of the gospel is that there is a way out. As Genesis chapter 11 shows us the depravity of man, and that we haven't advanced from Genesis chapter 3, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is that there is a way out. You can trust him to forgive you your sins. He lived a perfect life, he died a criminal's death, he rose from the grave and so by trusting him, he will declare all is forgiven. And then through nothing that you have done but by everything he has done, you will be counted amongst God's children when Christ returns. And the glorious end is found at the end of the Bible. formative episodes at the end of the Bible, Babylon is destroyed. The Tower of Babel is the birth of the city of Babylon, which is depicted all the way through Scripture as the arch enemy of God's people, Babylon. And in Revelation 18, Babylon is finally and ultimately destroyed. And in the corresponding chapter, Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem appears. The city of God appears. It is not built up from the ground, but it descends from heaven. It's not made by human hands. They're not building the new Jerusalem. It descends from heaven. And to be found in the new Jerusalem is to have such truths as that Christ will wipe away every tear from your eye. You will live forever with him, knowing no sin No sin in yourself, no sin around you, and there we will dwell forever. That is the truth that the gospel brings, and it is the ultimate solution to the problem of sin in man's heart. May it be true of all of us here this morning that we have trusted in Christ for salvation, and we are not building a tower for our name, but for his. Pray with me to close. Our Father, we do give you thanks for this text this morning that you've given to us to teach us about the reality of our sin, the persistence of our sin, the nature of our sin. We see just how ugly the pride of our hearts is as mankind would think to make themselves equal with you. Indeed, to try and replace you. And so clearly to attempt to thwart your purposes. And we know that same sin dwells in our heart. We are prone to make a name for ourselves, to consider so little the glory of your name, the glorious commission that you've given us to to make you known the whole world over. Father, forgive us for our sin. We're grateful for the gospel by which we're redeemed. You give us a new heart in Christ. And we do desire that our whole life would be a testimony to building, to laboring for the praise of your name. May that be true of us, Lord, that we have labored all the days that you give us so as to make your glory known and not our own. And again, Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you savingly. Be gracious. Quicken their heart unto repentance of their sins and a saving trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would be honored amongst us this morning. We ask these things in his name.